Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? In this series, I'm talking to artists, musicians, filmmakers, actors, art lovers and other creatives. I'm exploring how curiosity and courage not only creates great art and fuels the arts, but cultivates a healthy mind too. These same attitudes are cultivated in mindfulness practice with scientific and evidence-based results in the treatment of depression, stress and anxiety. So I'm asking, can art save us and help change the global epidemic of mental illness? And my guest today is street artist Muhammad Ali, MBE, who works both internationally and immersively, combining theatre, music and poetry into his work. Muhammad has a deep respect for heritage, community and the arts, and his purpose is clear. He wants to empower communities and celebrate multicultural stories around faith and migration. His artwork could be understood as a vital community service one of human connection. Mohammed is changing community division by demystifying culture, faith, and ethnicity. You could say spray can by spray can, but he's simply speaking clearly. Hello, Mohammed, and another big thank you for joining me today. Hi, Paula. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be able to speak to you today. Um, your work, um, I mean, it's both groundbreaking, um, but also has such a wonderful value um, in its simplicity. I mean, your own emphasis in terms of speaking clearly. And I saw that you also described yourself as an urban spiritual artist. I wondered if you could expand on that a little for us. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think that was probably mostly in my earlier years, although it's still one of the facets of my work, no doubt, you know, that you grow as an artist so initially i'd say most definitely faith my own personal faith as a muslim was a a, a absolute kind of focus of my work it was a key part of you know my whole um ethos and the work that i was making was very much celebrating my faith um uh quite openly confidently um especially being a muslim faith in the kind of the, the climate at that time we're talking kind of around you know post 9-11 when Muslims perhaps were were, were you know, framed in a negative way, you know, through media and the, and the kind of a climate at that time, you know, perceptions of Muslims. So my art at that time was very much kind of um, celebrating my faith in a positive form, really, to say I'm Muslim and I'm confident, you know, I, I'm 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 openly proclaiming and and professing my faith and and um, celebrating that through my work. You know, I, I wasn't I'm not a preacher preacher man you know I, I always make that very clear that you know my art isn't about preaching you know my faith to anybody you know I couldn't care less to be honest with you I've got my own issues to worry about than than kind of trying to try and uh, convert people you know um so it's more about celebrating who I am saying I'm going to to embed my faith and express my own faith in my work just so that I can say I'm I am me and I'm comfortable with me yeah, and it's a legitimate statement of your own identity and, and who you are. What I was interested to read was um, you rediscovered your faith, if you like, in your 20s. I wondered if you could tell us about that journey and, and how the faith you have helps you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think as a son of a migrant uh, from Bangladesh, 
my father moved here in the late 50s. Um, I was born here. I was born in the UK. So <clears throat> I'm of that generation that's perhaps kind of caught in between two worlds, if you like. Um, that's questioned, you know, my identity probably intensely, you know, explored. Am I British? Am I Bangladeshi? Am I Muslim? All of these different kind of facets to who we are as, you know, in our identity. Um, so I've, I've, um, whilst growing up as someone, you know, the early migrant generation weren't particularly, um, you know, massively observant of their faith. Whilst it was there and they, they were definitely kind of, I would, uh, you know, ascribe to being, uh, being Muslim and attending the mosque. We weren't, my parents weren't deeply religious like that. And a lot of the early migrants wouldn't, you know, they, they were very much just trying to make ends meet and get on with, you know, finding work wherever they could. They never really had time for, for kind of, um, you know, expressing their faith and, and, you know, being, being super religious, if you like. So we didn't grow up in a super religious environment. Um, but I did have an understanding of it, but I'd say, you know, I was just like any other teenager growing up in, in Britain, you know, getting up to whatever, you know, we do and became interested in painting graffiti on walls and, and, and any, any other things, you know, party life that, you know, a lot of uh, young guys were into at the time, but it was, like I said, uh, like you said, in the, my early twenties, where while I was at university, I started to think, uh, um, uh, and discover my faith a lot, a lot more. And it was very much like I had it on my doorstep all this time. You know, I was grew up with Islam in the community and attending the mosque, learning Arabic. But it was very much like most kids, like, oh, God, you know, do we really have to, you know? So that that's why why it was a kind of rediscovering of it, because it was like this is the beauty of, of, of my faith and the direction it gave me and the clarity and the focus it gave me in life. In my 20s, I was like, wow, you know, this has been on my doorstep all this time. And I've neglected it and neglected it for a number of reasons because, uh, again, it was that, the, the, I suppose, that migrant community uh, dichotomy, if you like, of code switching and having to, you know, in different places kind of shift and try to blend in and integrate where perhaps your faith became, you know, uh, kind of lost in that kind of, uh, in that journey as well because you were very much trying to suppress it even, you know, almost embarrassed of it, if I'm honest, uh, as well. So I've neglected this all this time. I've suppressed it. Now I want to shout loud and proud about it and say, this is me. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say that part of the identity issues you may have struggled with came from a feeling of vulnerability because you felt you were from a minority and because you felt you were from a faith that's misunderstood? Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. You know, um, you know, you, you, you were very, I, I just gave examples of the times where, you know, I was almost embarrassed. Well, you know, I can give examples, you know, when I was, you know, very ultra conscious of the difference of my family and of my, of, you know, my background, my cultural background, my religious faith. And I was super conscious of that to the point where you become, um, you know, you're not confident to kind of express that and share that. You realize the differences, whether it's at school, you know, parents' evening where my parents have to go in and they have spoken broken English and they were, wore a certain type of clothing. It was very different. You know, all of these things for a young young child grow, growing up, you know, a teenager growing up, you've become a bit aware of these things. Like, oh my God, you know, what? why am I different? And that the definitely kind of, um, you know, became a 
a big part of 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 the dilemma of growing up really you know the uh, of growing up in british society you know perhaps and uh later on you know when when my work when i started doing my work even and i started celebrating my faith in my work even then you know when i was doing a lot of press interviews you know questions would would forever be there you know are you british are you muslim you know where are you where do your loyalties lie you know is this this kind of strange place where you you were questioned about i suppose where you where, you know who you are and where you actually belong you know are you with us or are you against us these notions were were put out there and you you kind of felt like you know why is it so complicated you know i always say i don't have to choose to be, to being a son and a parent at the same time you know i can be very comfortably both and nobody has nobody can put on to me that i have to choose one or the other why can't i comfortably not be both and you don't neglect one for the other you absolutely can be you know of muslim faith and i can be very you know proudly um contributed to british society and say i'm british although i've perhaps been the question itself leads me to think that i maybe I, you know there is a question mark about how british i can really be and how british i will be no matter how much i try to be yeah it it always feels that the problem of polarization is a political intrusion it's not really <coughs> something people would choose mm-hmm. that's right i wondered if whilst just while we're talking about identity whether that posed any identity struggles even within your family actually um particularly because you later embraced your faith perhaps more seriously than you said your your parents uh did you know they weren't necessarily practicing uh or just the fact that you were you know you were born here I just wondered if that maybe posed any identity struggles at home even um I'd say I mean initially I suppose many in our, in our community and my family um this resurgence if you like of british born muslims and how suddenly well not suddenly probably more gradually you're seeing in the in the mosques um a much younger audience or audience worshipers or younger worshipers coming forward and present in the congregation perhaps prior to that you would you wouldn't you'd see just a bunch of elderly people really um you know elder folks that were maybe you know um just for because it was just the thing to do they did that but here you had a whole wave of of um young you know in tune very much uh what's the word um very much in tune with society and trends and aware of you know had street street cred and and then and they were embracing islam you know they were they were accepting this as as a way and actually blending that with their faith that was perhaps quite unusual for the community it was like oh these guys are quite perhaps even i'd say radical even a bit like oh my god you know it's a little bit threatening even and they're almost going too much into it you know We're, you know and and that that for me is the uh for me was the also the, the dilemma i suppose of the early immigrant generation that wanted to integrate and keep their faith as private in a secular society in order to blend in and that was a very different approach to us which was why that why the heck should i have to keep it hidden i in fact i'm very 
you know, I want to shout about it and say, this is me because I've suppressed it for so long, which was a very different, a stark difference to the our parents' generation that was very much like, son, keep your head down. Uh, we, we should be grateful to be here. You know, one day, like Idi Amin, they might, you know, throw us out. These are the things that we, perhaps from the earlier generation, uh, were fed. And it was a bit mind-boggling, really. Like, why, why should I feel like that? So that was kind of the difference between the generations of how we approached and saw our faith and how, you know, and, and there was a kind of a, a little tension in that. Yeah, that's interesting because um, you've also said how in the 80s hip hop culture saved you. And I imagine that could have been another at home tension. But I'd love to understand more about how you embraced hip hop and, and how it saved you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, I think um, prior to me exploring my faith in my work, um, hip hop culture was something that I guess you could say saved me, right? Um, in fact, no doubt hip hop did save me because it kind of gave me uh, a focus, a kind of a sense of belonging to something as well. You know, I was never much into much else really, you know, into sport or football or cricket or anything else that you know uh, and that people can kind of have to almost have a belonging to really you know and hip-hop culture for me um was exactly that it was like a breath of fresh air it was in the 80s growing up in uk in britain just kids playing on the streets as we did um in inner city birmingham where i grew up um i'd say discovering hip hop and the pillars of hip hop um especially kind of uh breaking down the elements of hip hop so it isn't just i mean there's an assumption hip hop is just uh you know people r r rhyming on a microphone but actually extending beyond that into um break dancing so there's a physical movement there's there's uh, djing um and then of course the visual element which is graffiti which is the 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 pillar of hip hop that I was drawn to, uh, and it felt like this were this whole expression, um, an art form that was born amongst the people that was on the streets. There wasn't an institution that you could go to learn it. You know, your teachers were were kids from around the block. You know, and that's where you learned the craft. And there were these unconventional tools um, that wasn't the the paintbrush and acrylic paint, but it was spray cans that were designed for painting cars. You know unconventional tools we were making our own art form this genre was defined by us and it was exciting to be a part of that um in the early days and we're talking pre-banksy yeah let's first of all clarify that the timeline of graffiti and street art didn't start with banksy yeah yeah um, yeah that's just, just the, a yeah. massive pr exercise that's dominated <laughs> yeah. yeah and a lot of the younger generations perhaps will, will have no kind of understanding or knowledge of of that earlier genera a journey of where graffiti kind of evolved from the subways of New York in a very kind of um uh you know in the kind of ghettos of of, of New York uh and impoverished youth that were expressing themselves in a, in an age of social decay you know that's where graffiti came from not not from Shoreditch and uh you know. yeah yeah <laughs> so so I think um and I'm very always uh, keen to share that, actually, because I think understanding things on that deeper level are always wise for us to have a, 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 you know, it's always good for us to have that foundation and knowledge. So, yeah. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And and the, so often art comes from a, a, a space of struggle, not a, not just yeah. directly from a PR agency. Um, yeah. And it seems perhaps the hip hop culture helped you unleash your creative expression. Yeah. <clears throat> from that point of view, was it an act of bravery? Because it's one thing, isn't it, to express yourself creatively but to do it publicly absolutely, is is yeah. quite brave um what's your view on that yeah i mean absolutely i mean the exciting thing about street art and what that discovery of it back then was we were finally able to just say this is me but not this is me but do that in a public space to do to take over the visual landscape and say this is me you were saying i have power right in a time when i didn't have power that's let's break it down to simply to what we are doing when we paint a wall when i paint it and done without permission as well um you was you were literally saying that you know i have the power and that was liberating for inner city kids from migrant backgrounds, some of the, a lot of the time, um, to be able to do that, you really it was it took you took you to another level where you f- you felt no nothing else could empower me, and that's how I why I say hip hop culture saved me because it gave me a voice. It felt the tools that I was using, you know, I could get them from this corner shop, you know, where there's a hardware store, right? And that's what we were doing. Um, it was my doorway into the art world because otherwise, you know accessing that art world you know was very difficult even while i was studying art at school learning about the great masters you know was not something i identified with it was very much like learning about these masters and their lives and how really it doesn't connect with me as an inner city kid you know born in in birmingham right uh of migrant background so that doorway into the art world that that street art graffiti gave me was was something that really transformed my life because I finally uplifted me to stand tall and take the wall as a uh, as a canvas and 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 battle with the wall as well because this urban space that surrounded us that I always say almost imprisoned us um, divided us even um, these physical walls we transformed into things of beauty urban grey ugly concrete walls became our canvas so when we were attacking these spaces it really was a battle it was about saying these structures that are surround that are are, are planted around us we didn't have a choice in them these walls just appear right and even how they look even how they look and 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 kind of dominate the physical space around us we have a say in how that looks and we and we, and no one has to give us permission. We just do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so many significant things in that, and I think it especially speaks to the series question. Actually, can art save us? Because you've all already referenced how, in terms of mental health or your own well-being, you know, the fact that it gave you that act of expression that you could stand tall, as you put it you know, that it legitimised your voice. It gave you a way of having a voice. But also the transformation 
within your community, you know, that you could make something look beautiful. Mm-hmm. All of this speaks to well-being, doesn't it? That's that's right. That that's exact that that point there about we had the power to create our, the beauty in our lives, right? Nobody's going to do that for us, right? And that wouldn't happen in the places you know in the city, you know, dilapidated parts of the city that you where we lived um and that we came home to. Nobody's going to beautify that for us. So us to be able to have that power to say we are going to transform our own spaces and create the beauty that surrounds us. And that ultimately, I always say this, you know, ultimately the visual landscape and how it looks absolutely affects how we think and feel on a day-to-day basis in the places where we live, work and play, right? When we go out and on a daily basis, when we see color around us, that color is transformative to, you know, to our kind of feeling and mindset. And I think the pandemic, I'm sure you agree, has really acutely amplified that issue of the environment and the lack of space and actually the inequality of space, you know, even down to whether you have a garden or not, particularly when we're in intense circumstances of restrictions. Um, I think I think your work helps amplify that because it's raising those questions of who has space and who controls the space. You're right, the space and public space. Is it really public? I don't think there's any such thing as public space anymore because, you know, these spaces that you, in our communities, we don't own them and we don't have a say over them. In fact, sometimes we'll see things in in the space and you're like, where did that come from, right? City authorities would come and plonk something there, even a piece of art or a sculpture, and you're like, oh, where did that, who, who, who asked for that to be there? So I think there's important questions about actually how, how much say do we have, and actually um, I would say empowering us to, to take ownership of space. Um, and if that means we have to do unconventional uh, things which is take ownership and transform our own environment and not wait for someone to move it's a bit like i suppose trash or stuff that's left and certainly in inner city parts of birmingham where you see stuff left and they kind of think communities feeling like well i don't really have a say i can't deal with that situation there they might see stuff left and they'd be like i don't know what to do and you just expect that someone will move it or someone and it doesn't it will continue to come and perhaps communities' feeling of um, like they don't have a right or they don't really, they kind of almost feel powerless because society makes them feel like you stay there and we will make decisions for you over there. And that's, I suppose, the, the challenge that I have as a street artist and the spirit of street art is about challenging that this notion that we are powerless and we should be told and guided by people over there people in those glass structures over there telling people over here that they have no clue about really. And that disconnect, if you like, and the people feeling, I, I suppose what I, my art is about is about empowering people and street art is, is, is just that it's saying take ownership, uh, have power. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree. And I suppose what it raises of course, is almost that question of, of courage again. Is it, is it because, more of us need to find the courage to do that. 
Yeah, I think so. I think um, we kind of fall into this slumber, if you like. Society just falls into this. And like you said, the pandemic, I think, really highlighted and heightened our awareness of ourselves and the things we took for granted. Um, and I think it's perhaps been a blessing as well in many ways because it's made us question the things we took for granted, you know, the space around us, the, you know, appreciating the beauty that we didn't realize was on our doorstep, the beauty of community. All of these things have helped us kind of feel a little bit more aware of these things, I think. Um, and definitely, I, I think um, courage, you use the word courage, I'd say absolutely. I mean, I think society could always, people always need more courage to speak out, to be themselves, to challenge, um, to connect with one another, even kind of overcome the, uh, perhaps the, um, uh, sen not sensitivities, but the kind of uh, um, coming out of their comfort zones for even connecting with one another, you know, uh, with other people, or people of that that are, they've never spoken to in their own lives, you know, other people who don't look like them, people who, who you know, are from complete, an opposite, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, perspective to them, right? How do we do that? How do we kind of almost break the ice, if you like? Uh, and that's where that courage is necessary for us to kind of go. You know what? I, I, and I, I, I completely embrace those opportunities. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make those opportunities where I, I want to be. I want to be in a room full of people that hate my guts, right? Uh, and I think it's important. And I have been. I've been quite blessed to be in situations where. I've got a hundred, about hundred people who want to eat me alive, who you know I've been in a room full of racists where they're like, you know, and I place myself in that space because I've said, you know what, it has to be done because society makes them feel that I am of someone of you know X, Y, and Z position, which is not true. So if I don't place myself in that space, society doesn't create those spaces. It never does. It will never do so. Right? It doesn't create those difficult spaces for people to convene it will it will might be tea and samosas and and biscuits and scones in a community hall where you've got people preaching to the converted really but is there space to kind of gather and connect people of polar opposites that you could say come on let's let's have it out here and that moment where for example it's that fundamental question i i, I i'm sure many will be familiar with it but when i've had someone say to me I hope you don't mind. Um, uh, and they're a bit nervous. They might be stuttering. Oh, uh, uh, I, ho I hope you don't mind. But I just wanted to ask you, do, do you mind if I ask? And you're like, me, I'm like, spit it out. Absolutely. There's no such thing as that difficult, uncomfortable question. Don't worry too much about offense, so-called offending me. So they're like, oh, I hope you don't mind. But do you know, as Muslims, do you, do you believe that like, there should be like Sharia in this country? And I'm like, uh, listen, <laughs> I don't believe that. And thank you for having the courage to ask me because society does not uh, create these outlets for, for people to be comfortable to ask such things. It's so important what you're saying and, it, and it's so incredibly insightful and kind as well because not everyone is kind, um, you know, in terms of being sensitive back. Um, and I think what you're highlighting is, is so deeply worrying that we are so fearful of talking to each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, that seems to be a huge barrier that you're, you're helping 
to change. What what I'm interested in from what you were just saying is, where does your courage come from? I mean, you know, I was in a room of racists, people that wanted to eat me alive. I mean, that deep hatred, and of course, you're absolutely right to disrupt that space and to take ownership of it. But that doesn't mean it's easy. Where does your courage come from to do that? Hmm. Yeah, um, I'd say I trying to identify where it comes from, and it's probably a few different sources, really. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it's it's come from a place of frustration when finally almost seeing the light, if you like, of uh, and waking from that slumber, waking from that li- that little um, insecure voice, that insecure mind about my migrant identity and finally waking from that has led me to feel you know almost on fire yeah that's where the courage comes from of uh, frustrations of of being placed in that space where i place myself and society's placed myself in a space which was you're just a little voice you stay there you know you're different you're other you're of that community and we feel insecure because we don't blend into mainstream society perhaps and it's finally being breaking from that and being free is where now i'm kind of very in your face about going like it or lump it this is me i don't mess around <laughs> and also to be honest with you whilst i did say my parents were very much um you know of that mindset you know they would you know want to try to blend in and they there's a specific moment you asked me and that's why I hesitated because there is probably a, a defining moment that I've, I often speak about, uh, which is my mother. And, and I still remember, and there's a specific incident that happened and I remember it, you know, I was only probably five years old and I still remember it like crystal clear. And it was when I'd walked into the school playground, my mom dropped me off in the school playground and the bell rings and all the children have to, you know, completely stand still. I don't know if that happens in this day and age, but literally you have to be like statues. You cannot move. <laughs> so the bell's gone. The teachers rang the bell to start the end of the, of the morning, you know, kid, you know, school and kids have arrived. You have to stand still, no more running around. And I just literally, my mom's let me go and I've run into the school gates. Everyone's standing still. And the teacher sh- grabs me physically. Cause in those days they did. They'd grab you by the by the arm and shake me violently, in fact, right? Because it was like, why are you still running? And my mother was there and she witnessed that. And she came over to the teacher as an immigrant woman with broken English, wearing a sari. And my mother shrieked at the teacher and says, well, you don't have to shake him like he's a dog. And I still remember those words. And those words are what give me the strength. And I remember feeling proud as a five-year-old but my mom put that teacher in her place, right? And that has, I suppose, subconsciously has been part of my strength to say, we might be of immigrant background, but don't ever let anybody walk all over you because you're different. Such a beautiful and powerful example. And what a gift from your mom, her courage, you know, imparted to you in that way. Um, It's so underestimated, isn't it, how those acts of courage are so huge when you're coming from the most vulnerable position, you know, not even having the comfort of language, but nevertheless asserted herself. 
Um, it's wonderful, isn't it, that you've got that memory so clearly? Yeah, yeah absolutely. If yeah. if you're happy um, to talk a little more about your mother, I think um, it's very timely to mention the Brick Lane mural, The Land is Calling, um, because um, I know that was particularly personal to you yeah, in yeah. relation to your mum, um, depending on how much you'd like to talk about that um, and f- and to help the listeners to understand what that mural is. Sure, sure. I mean, look, uh, I don't, I will say um, there's no taboos here. There's no, you know, for me, uh, I, in a way, it's perhaps very different in a way um, to the way society, British secular society, um, approaches things, you know, which is even your question, which was, if it's okay, um, can we talk about that? For me, and my Islamic faith says, absolutely, this is a thing we talk about five times a day, right? Death, uh, bereavement, loss of parents. There's no discomfort here. I mean, I understand, of course, some, a lot of society will, you know, it is a thing that we maybe tread carefully about because we want to ensure that we don't, you know, trigger any trauma or any wounds. Uh, but for me, uh, in a in a way, that's a little bit of an alien concept for me in being brought up as a Muslim in Britain because, Again, it's one of those things that uh, these two worlds that we straddle, right? I'm aware of those kind of sensitivities, but at the same time, being of Muslim faith, you're kind of like, well, this is this is a daily reality. Death is a, a reality of our existence. It's the one thing inescapable for every single human being. So why is it that we don't talk about it more? Uh, and after the loss of my mother to COVID um, in 2021, the start of 21. Um, you know, I think it's it's give, made me even more um, open to talk, exploring it because I realized that experience of death, you know, I've experienced it many times. I've lost count of how many bodies I've lowered into the ground. I can tell you that now because as a Muslim, um, it is a reality. You know, we, we kind of attend, you know, funerals. We bury the dead. We send them off, you know, whether they're close or they're distant relatives. We make the effort and we're almost commanded to you know, see off the dead, you know, respect and honor the dead. So it is a part of our, you know, everyday, if you like, you know, and I, I honestly have lost count of how many people have um, shrouded even their bodies and lowered them into the graves. And my mother being the closest to me. So that was, you know, like a, a real, uh, my mother lived with this as well. So all my life, all my years, you know, since I was a child, I've had my mother very close to me. Um, so, it was, um, you know, a thing that I'm very comfortable talking about. And uh, no doubt as an artist, it's kind of uh, fed into uh, some of my more my art recently. I made a short film recently that's been screened uh, in a few places, actually, uh, in, 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 you know, outside of the UK as well. And it was very much about what we've just, what just took place with, with the pandemic and the loss of my mother. Uh, and that film's online as well. Um, so, and then the mural as well, like you mentioned, the Brick Lane mural, I'd say, after the passing of my mother, I think for me, that was the, the pinnacle, if you like, of my understanding of what the ancestral land really means. And this mural that I painted in Brick Lane, which has the words in Bengali reading uh, Matitan, which translates as 
the pull of the land or the land is calling is kind of what the uh, sentiment is, but the literal translation is the pull of the land. Uh, whilst that is something that many migrants, elder migrants from the area of the local Bangladeshi community, which is what I kind of painted for, a lot, whilst many of them um, would relate to that absolutely because they have le they left their the motherland you know decades ago in the 60s and the 70s it's something that my generation i feel absolutely understands i do i had that calling of the land i don't know nothing of the land other than just some compulsive trips in the summer holidays with our parents to come and discover discover where you're really from but we would much rather have gone to i don't know Costa del Sol or somewhere else, like most of the other kids at school. <laughs> like, oh my God, do we really have to go to to, to Bangladesh? <laughs> right. So, so, so we 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 had those compulsory trips. We didn't particularly enjoy them, um, but it was only after the passing of my my father and then my mother, my father about twelve years ago, where I really felt like that land over there is my parents, and it was the closest thing I had to reconnecting literally with my parents. So I, I had this calling of the land. It was a resounding voice in my head that was just pulling me like a, a strong magnetic force that said, come. And I did. I literally, the, a few months ago, about only three months ago, in January 22, I, um, I literally just got up and went. Uh, I was editing a film uh, about the kind of early migrant experience. I was recording testimonies about how how these how a lot of the migrants how they struggled and persevered and came and left their families thousands of miles away and I was recording these interviews and I was in the edit process it was for a projection I was working on at the British Library where I projected these big video uh, recordings of of these elders speaking of 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 their struggles and while I was editing that I just said I I'm, I need to go and I just booked my flights there and then listening to those voices just triggered something for me. Uh, and one person was talking about Matitan, the land is calling. And then I was like, my God, the land is calling me right now. And I booked my flights. So painting that mural in Brick Lane, when I came back from Bangladesh, I absolutely just poured everything out of my feelings of, of that pull of, of the land. We might be here and totally rooted in this place, but there was this calling, there's this kind of ancestral land, whether you're from there and you were born there or you're not, whether you've got two or three generations who are from there and you might not be, one day it's going to come calling for you, right? You can run all you like, like I did, right? Run all you like, but one day it's going to come and stare you in the face and ask you who you really think you are. Yeah, it's just so powerful. It's amazing experience to hear. So that mural in Brick Lane is is really an expression of that impact of that visit to to Bangladesh. Um, I mean, how would you describe the impact? You know, when you literally landed and you were there, what, what, you know, was it even an unexpected impact? How 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 did it feel? What did it change? Um, it was the first time since my, my mother's passing that I'd been there, so it was no doubt an, an emotional journey um, going in. Um, I went to the village where my parents were from <clears throat> and I went and I saw extended, you know, family and I kind of reassured them. I went to, uh, that was part of my journey to say, you might think 
you've lost us because our parents are gone. So we, you know, the sons and daughters um, of of those will never be interested in coming and going here. And I kind of went along to say, listen, you know, this is this is how it is now. Don't ever think that I'm going to be divorcing myself of this land like I may have growing up all these years. You know, I am here and I'm present and and it's part of my parents' legacy for me to continue that connection and ensure and, and even pass it on to my own children to say it's important to maintain that connection, that cultural kind of background of us being of Bangladeshi heritage. It's It's a totally necessary part of your identity to accept and embrace um you you can't you you can't fight it and it's to suppress and fight that and pretend that it's not something that um important to you i think is is uh can be quite harmful in the long run yeah absolutely and everything you've spoken about just really shows how our has a role in respecting heritage and, as you've just said, uh, well-being in terms of, for example, the passing of your mum and the grief involved, but perhaps that artwork and that expression of that artwork really helped you manage grief or work through mm. grief. Um, and certainly what you were saying earlier, there is definitely a problem with death or the understanding of death not being talked about enough. So I think grief becomes becomes very harmful because we're just not practised in talking about it. So it's very interesting yeah. hear you talk about your familiarity with it and through your faith, the inevitable openness towards mm, it. Mm, mm. And I think I think all of these issues, art is the perfect space to do to explore that, right? Um, which comes back to your topic, isn't it? About can art save us? If art doesn't speak of these things, then what's the point? Um, art for art's sake, art for just decoration, art as eye candy. For me, it doesn't make sense. You know, if I'm going to use my energy to creatively express myself, all of these things that I'm feeling about society and how, you know, the legacy of my mother, you know, it's all in vain otherwise, right? If I don't use my energy, my ability, the one ability that I have, I wasn't very good at much else. Uh, believe me, I did try, you know, family pressures would be like, doctor, be a doctor, lawyer, or an engineer, and all these other professions. And I tried my best to, to fight the creativity inside of me. But I realized I was stuck with this. This is the thing that I'm, um, perhaps the only gift that I have uh, was that was given to me. Um, and to not use that to call to these things that I feel can transform and benefit people, then then it's it just feels like a waste really. You know, we've got this platform, we've got this voice to and an ability and a brilliant ability to say things that other people the society can't say. You know, doing a book or doing a, a leaflet about these issues, we're kind of chasing our tails really. When we look at these age-old problems, <clears throat> when we look at these age-old problems in society, whether it's racism or segregation or just kind of well-being in general, you know, and we look at various interventions that perhaps, you know, society or governments or various authorities try to implement, sometimes I think, my God, you know, it's not rocket science what's needed here. 
but you find these in interventions that you think, what a waste. Is that really making impact? Why is that? It's bizarre. Sometimes you see things you're like, really? Is that going to change anything? Yeah. But then you think, well, it's the job of the artists to be empowered and society to empower them to say, guys, we we don't know what we're doing anymore, right? That's the way it should be, right? Authorities or institutions that are in charge of dealing with societal problems, right? To say, we've screwed up. Sorry, guys. Yeah, we've had all this money. We don't really know what we're doing. Hand it over to you guys. Can you tell us what the solution is here? And that's where it should be. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. That's how I feel. Yeah, no, completely. It's it's interesting um, uh, that you uh, talk about that um, ownership of, if you like, of of art and how it's managed. Because actually, in relation to the land is calling, I read the blog recently by Professor James Hopkinson. Mm, yeah, and I really found that interesting because he was raising the dilemma of art washing um, mm -hmm. and. Just to give listeners context, that's the idea of using art positively, but actually it may be maybe to hide something that's negative. So that could be gentrification or corporate ownership of an area, for example. But the point he made that I really liked was it still doesn't remove the social commentary, if you like, or the statement that the artist has already made or your mural in Brick Lane has already made it still if you like has a role in positive disruption mm. what what are your thoughts on that i think so i think i was not dictated to what i paint there and that was the point right that if someone commissions me if there's freedom for me to paint what i paint i can still call to that disruption right yeah let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here i do understand the whitewashing that might occur and the gentrification, et cetera, and the other problems. I do get that. And I actually do support that. But this mural that was facilitated, um, I, I know it's a complex one in particular, this, this argument about the mural. And there were things that I was, I'm uncomfortable about. I can't deny that. Um, but it just feels like there's a bit of throwing the baby out with the bathwater because what I paint calls to the same you know, thing, really, what I was doing was a disruption to say this community, this street, this heritage of this area is being forgotten and buried and nobody else has acknowledged it. Here is an opportunity for me to paint this mural in my own terms, right, with nobody dictating to me, yeah? I turned down a lot of work that people will say, we'd like this, we'd like that, and I'm like, well, you carry on and do that then. If you'd like to engage with me and helping you respond differently, um, that's what I like to do. But if you have an idea of what you want and you want to just have someone kind of paint by numbers and just dictate to them what you want, then that probably isn't the kind of, I'm not that type of artist, so I'm very selective of how I work. But in that instance, I, I feel like there's an opportunity to have a permanent piece of art. Uh, and if that highlights the discourse around whitewashing, then maybe that's that's the great thing, actually. The conversations that came out of that mural perhaps part of the process in fact you know some will see the art and interpret the things that i wanted to get across which were important but then it will have a backstory of of the the so-called whitewashing that's what's happening as well yeah and it seems to me that like absolutely everything you do the whole point is dialogue if it's raising mm. that conversation or that mm. wrestle or that dialogue that's more important and i would also add that 
it isn't just a piece of art that won't know about some of the kind of issues because I uh, there's a as a podcast that is um, that I recorded and made the time took the time out to actually spend time to share some of the thinking behind that mural and and um, there'll be a QR code that sits alongside that mural so the context is there so I'm going out of my way to ensure that it isn't just some fluffy eye candy on a wall right. That's amazing because you've created access. It's digital access. That's that's mm. fantastic. In terms of access and how you widen access, um, that maybe brings us to how you've evolved your work in terms of performance. You know, the combination of theatre, poet, poetry and, and music. Um, I'd love to hear more about that. And also a very simple question. Do you ever get stage fright? First of all, stage fright, I never do. You know, I don't know why. I think it's that fire that I got from my mum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I, it really is. I never do that fire that I've got. I don't know where I get it from, but I've stood in front of thousands and thousands and 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 I'm, I can stand there and say, I think I get a kick out of it because I'm like, look, look, I'm not just that shy kid in the playground anymore, right? That would hang my head. And be like, oh, you know, my parents are different. My my culture is this, and now I can kind of shout about that to thousands of people, and and that 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 excites me a lot. But um, in terms of the ev evolution of my work beyond street art, um, as partly because, I mean, one thing to clarify first is that I'm part artist, but also I work quite strategically, right? Um, as a visual artist. I became a bit frustrated with being positioned as this artist that's kind of shipped in, brought in, do your magic, and you you parachute out again, right? And I felt it came a point where I was a bit disillusioned with the um, these kind of one-off moments, if you like, right? And I thought, you know what, I'm a bit frustrated with this because what then? What happens when these beautiful moments, this art, just happens the magic happens and then the dust settles and i think what then people would even say to me oh yeah that was amazing what, what next you know you're going to come back to our community and i'm like oh i'm not sure what, what's the strategy here so i started thinking beyond these one-off moments and i felt like the art had to be kind of expanded so that it was there was a strategy to it so that it was a machine in place rather than what i always describe of one-off moments of fireworks this wonderful spectacle that happens. But then when the dust settles, nothing, right? How do we build on that so that we, we don't have these just one spectacle there, but we have, you know, a long-term long strategy of, spe of spectacle moments that work to, collectively to transform uh, or create wider transformation that's going to be long-lasting. That's the, that's the way I started to think beyond my craft as a visual artist. I felt... I have to be strategic. I have to think about what I had to almost evaluate some of my performances or, or even the art I was painting. I was going, am I doing it right? I'd speak to people. I'd become more than just a visual artist that just sits in a studio as a bit of a recluse um, and just make art very isolated. I became like someone who wanted to talk more to people, involve them in the process, um, track different methods and formulas of what I was doing and what I was painting and what was really working so I could build on that. That's really important. Almost like on a, a militarily kind of, uh, you know, working strategically quite strict, almost 
contrary to what artists might do often, I felt like I had to gain a skill of working a bit more, you know, methodically to to build and 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 share a, a process that I can pass on to someone. And say, I tell you what, you do that, and you mix a bit of this and a bit of that. You know what? You you'll be able to make something really special. And it was when I started to bring in music and poetry and physical performance and have lights on stage and paint at the same time and weave in a real beautiful story throughout, bringing all these different elements together, all these multidiscipline, if you like, of disciplines of art forms. I, I it really I, it helped take my art to another level, and and I felt like it was, you know being transformative on another level as well with the community, with the audiences. So when I'd speak to them, that they, they felt like they were fully immersed. They felt like they were surrounded by, you know, not just the visuals, but the sounds, the music, the words, the story, the lighting, you know, even the scent and the smell. Once you bring all these and you, and you, and you orchestrate them in, a, in beautifully, you've got the audience eating out of the palm of your hands. And that's where I wanted to try to get to, to that space, which was how can I, create an enriching transformative experience um so that's where 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 that all came from and then on top of that being strategic which is why i set up my arts organization and we you know we started thinking now that we've got the formulas right we've worked on these wonderful formulas that we can share we want to now um expand and and take that you know into different places and make it accessible so the arts organization and thinking strategically was part of that journey to say, no, you know, I can't be an artist. I'm only 30% artist. I'm 30% strategic thinker. Um, and the rest of it is being a father to my children and family and taking time out for them. Yeah. It, it's, it's really, it's really interesting because it's really highlighting the importance of purpose and strategy right. is obviously really part of that. Um, I love actually talking about your, immersive experiences i mean the vatican state example i mean mm. that must have been like the ultimate statement yeah. you know where you were you were really helping people to open up their minds and free their minds perhaps you could just talk a little about that for the listeners the fact that it combined islamic prayer jazz gregorian chants and and quite a few spray cans mm. I mean, I was invited. It was the first TEDx event that took place in the Vatican State. So getting that invitation, I was mind blown. I was like, wow, this is going to be awesome. Um, and it was, you know, I went out into the Vatican State. I was, it felt like I was in places that someone of Muslim faith had never, ever been historically. This was, un it was mind blowing. Even the place I was staying, it was a building, it was a 15th century space where I think a lot of the clergy stayed. And I was like, Am I the first Muslim ever in history in this building? You know, it, it blew my mind as an inner city, you know, Muslim from Birmingham, England, um, being in the Vatican and invited onto the stage. And I remember having the freedom to just do what I, what I wanted to do on stage. And I just thought that was such an important, uh, generous invitation that they weren't nervous about, oh, what's this Muslim fella going to, do you know we got to police him a little bit he might offend there was this openness to just do your thing and and tell us you know who you are and i i painted live on stage i come up with this performance that was kind of 
choreographed beforehand. I painted two Gregorian chants that we'd edited and this kind of beautiful jazz vocals of a friend of mine called Cleveland Watkiss from London. And also recordings from my pilgrimage to Mecca, um, these kind of chants and supplications of hundreds of thousands of people while they're circling around the cube in the middle, the Kaaba, it's called. Um, and I remember recording those sounds and I'd kept those recordings of, imagine the hum of 300,000 people circling and I'd recorded that sound and I was waiting for the right moment to use them in a project and I thought, being in the Vatican, that would be an awesome place to use that. I wanted to save it for the right show. And we put it together. Um, and I remember someone saying to me afterwards, after the performance was done, and he said to me, are you aware there was a half of that row at the front? They're all in tears. And I said, wow, really? That's incredible. Because I, I don't remember saying or doing anything that was obviously emotional. You know, I thought, I wonder what triggered them? What, where did the emotion come from? And this was one of my earliest um, memories of how I became a bit strategic because I thought, I want to know. I want to know what it was that triggered it so I can capture that in a bottle and go, there it is. That's very, very important, actually, to understand what led to this spontaneous moment of, you know, emotion, if you like. And I tried to find them after the show. I was like, and I was asking everybody, tell me how you feel. Well, what was it that? made you triggered you to and then everybody was sharing why and how and i remember just making mental notes going oh wow that's really important that that's what made it work and it was the you know the personal aspect of what i was pulling out and bringing that together of islamic call for prayer um with the gregorian chants that was that i remember the the vatican experience being really something until this day i'll never forget uh, of how amazing it was to be a, a muslim in the vatican yeah, I mean, it, it's really beautiful. It's so significant. And, you know, I like that, you know, it's kind of an act of courage, if you like, on the, the Vatican State's behalf. Like you said, you know, would this have been too radical? I, I like that. I love the, the openness towards that, that that was embraced. And I love that you had this surreal experience of being that person. What do you think you learned from discovering people were in tears? Is it just that it's simply an act of compassion and connection and and uh, and being allowed to be connected i think so i think um i think maybe not i think there's perhaps an an energy of when we share and when we speak i don't want to get too i'm not really no super intellectual like this you know so i'm going to break it down in the language that i know mm. which is which is there's a certain energy levels that we exude when we speak and when we share right and i think what is important and i try to train myself to do just like i'm speaking to you i'm not scripted here i'm not here i train myself i hope that when i'm sharing and speaking into this microphone right now is words that are from the heart i'm just i'm just freestyling i'm sharing something i have no agenda here i have not really about honestly i'm not even about oh, I'm an artist, I want to just get my message out and I want to build my brand. I don't care about any of that, right? And I think your listeners will know when I speak right now, I'm just speaking authentically and and my motivations, my agenda or my intentions are, are, are non really. It's about, well, I have intentions, but I don't have ulterior agendas. I'm not coming from a place which is, you know, uh, 
I suppose in a way, I mean, even me saying this, I'm a bit comfortable even saying this because I'm not trying to be all humble or all that, but it is a bit selfless. I'm, I'm not interested in anything selfish here, right? I'm just sharing because I'm like, you know what? I could be, I could be dead tomorrow. So in order to continue the legacy of my mother, any goodness of the words I share into this microphone will benefit um, people and actually be something that celebrates my mom. So I think we we must, I always try to teach people to just to be real and authentic because once you do, that there's an energy in it that will exude from your work that will people will that will just transfer to people and they will go that's that's just genuine real realness if you like i can't find the words to explain it because i suppose we're talking about something that's quite abstract and intangible here and maybe that's the beauty of it yeah definitely i think um i think you're right um abstract or what we discover just through curiosity, creative exploration, it, it, the fact that it simply comes down to openness and mm. and compassion comes with that openness. Um, talking of compassion, I'm in great pain when I always notice the hour has gone <laughs> by. Um, the only problem I have with this series is I could talk to all of you for hours, but something I'd 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 like to ask as we as I have to force myself to. Uh, conclude the interview is we were talking a lot at the beginning about you know identity growing up in Birmingham and so on and I also wondered whether actually you may have encountered any prejudiced responses because of course graffiti art was always associated with vandalism and hooliganism but at the same time I love that you have one of the highest honours in the UK, an MBE, member of the British Empire. So I just wondered what that juxtaposition feels like. That's a good question, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, I think uh, I've enjoyed, as I've just explained, straddling different places. That's supposed been that's the story of my life, whether it's the kind of dichotomy of of being in two worlds of immigrant background, but born here, um, being an artist, but also thinking strategically, right? I've kind of enjoyed being able to shift between different places. Um, and I think there's a, there's a magic in that to be able to kind of go across lines and move from one side to the other and shift around a little bit. Part of that comes from, if I'm honest, um, from working my dad's Indian restaurant since the eighties, right? Being able to kind of just, be a people person a little bit to be able to know how to shift and and move and engage differently in different places the way i would deal with different customers you know whether i'm dealing with someone who comes in before 10 p.m and then the ones that come in after midnight and they're a little bit drunk you know i had to it was the way you just had to kind of shift and, and survive that that was how it was um so being in a position of a street artist that perhaps is um, a free spirit to say what I like against, you know, whether it, it about any uh, situation or injustice and having that freedom while at the same time having this title that's associated with the empire. It was a difficult one, but I, I felt it'd be interesting to be in a place that I can kind of straddle these two worlds. Um, I hesitated, there's no doubt. I don't often speak about this. I'm not asked much about it. Uh, I'm not someone who flashes my MBE around. Um, I find that strange when people do. 
um, and really make a point of it. Like, oh, I, I'm not, it's not about that. It was, I, I'm I kind of happy to quietly have it, uh, but be in an interesting space where, you know, people might be surprised that, whoa, you've got that, but you speak about these things, you know, that are quite contentious and controversial. Uh, and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's using that position to, make statements that would never be done in that in that arena it changes barriers doesn't it mm. um you know even if it is just that lovely unexpected you know it's unexpected perhaps oh graffiti mm. artist awarded mba that you know what's important is it's changed that barrier and of course it's changed that space which is what you're in the business of mm-hmm. that's right Mohammed, unless there's anything you'd like to to add, um, I just can't thank you enough. It's been just so interesting talking to you. And, I, and, and if you don't mind, I will reveal that you have courageously taken part in this, having been diagnosed with COVID only just last night. So it's so generous of you because I know how tiring COVID is. Thank you very, no, no, very no much. Problem. No problem. Thank you. Thank you, Paula, for having me. You're very welcome. And I'll I'll talk to you soon. Thank you.